We're going to talk about choosing your inheritance. What if you could choose your inheritance? What if you could choose who you were going to inherit from? Who would it be? A couple. What's that? Bill Gates. I, I knew Bill Gates was going to pop up. Bill Gates. Who else? Warren Buffett, maybe. You know, I mean, these guys that have all this money, and you could go on and on, you know, these people that just have money coming out of their ears, and you think, I'd like to inherit from them. But remember on Mother's Day, we talked about those two little old ladies who didn't appear to have anything, and when they died, they both bequeathed, bequeathed, I guess is how you say it, they bequeathed over a million, over, I think, over a billion dollars between them to charities. Sometimes it's not what it looks like. You could go with a wealthy person like the Gates family or with the Buffett and find out that they're not very generous with what they give to their descendants or the people that they give their money to when they die. And you may find that these little old ladies that don't appear to have anything have a lot to give to you. It's a lot how it is between the world and the Lord. The world can look so good, like it has so much to offer us. But the problem is, is when life ends here on earth, you lose all of that. It's all gone. Sometimes with the Lord, it doesn't look like there's that much on the surface. But when life ends, you get everything. So we're going to talk about whose inheritance you're going to take, the inheritance of the world or the inheritance of the Lord. And the reason we're going to do that is because that's what Paul talks about. We're looking at a series. We're getting near the end of our series on Paul's epistle or long letter, his first one that he wrote to Timothy. Timothy is his protege. Paul is the, the great missionary, statesman, and apostle, and he's nearing the end of his life, and he's writing this letter from Macedonia to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, a city in modern-day Turkey under the Roman Empire. And he's telling him how to pastor a church. So he's telling him, follow instructions. That's what our series has been, follow instructions. And these are good instructions for us to learn how to be a new church. And as we're going through this, you notice that as he's getting everything all set up, at the end of this letter, he starts talking about the different kinds of people in the church. He says, hold your leaders accountable. He says, take care of the needy. Take care of the widows. Here's some special instructions for the slaves that we talked about last week that are in your church. And now today, today he is going to talk about your inheritance. And he's going to kind of get back and talk about false teaching and how our temptation is to follow the way of our culture, but we need to follow the way of Christ. And so we're going to talk about choosing your inheritance. And we're going to start today. We'll be looking at first Timothy chapter six, verses three through 10. And we're going to look at verses three through five to start with. And we're going to to kind of make a contrast at the very beginning here, choosing the world's wisdom or the word's wisdom. Will you follow the world and culture, or will you follow what the Bible says, which is often called the word, the world's wisdom or the word's wisdom? Um, We'll pick up on verse 3. He says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. Paul is a very sensitive, gentle, tender Christ follower, and he wants to put this in terms that aren't going to hurt anybody's feelings. 
Actually, he gets, he, he actually is pretty straightforward, isn't he? I mean, he, he, he seems like he gets, as he gets near the end of the letter, he starts picking up some steam. And so what's interesting is he says, teaches false doctrine. Doctrine basically means teaching, but it's, it's more formal teaching. It's sort of the central teachings of the faith. Anybody who takes the central teachings of the faith and distorts them in any way is doing the wrong thing. So that's what he's saying here. But he says the word, he uses the word teaches. And that's a cool word here in the Greek because the word means more than being a teacher. It actually implies somebody who assents to or consents to the teaching. So in other words, you may say, I kind of buy some of the teachings of my culture over my Bible. I'm going, to, I'm going to give in on some of those things, but I'm not a false teacher. I don't ever say anything to really hardly anybody. I can't keep it to myself. Paul would say, you're still one of them because you have the same mindset that they have. And that's the, the meaning of the word here. So he's coming down pretty hard. And then he says, instead, we should have sound or healthy instruction from our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the one who came to save us. And he who, notice how he emphasizes he who is the Lord and ruler over us. We ought to follow the guy who is the Lord over us and follow those who have followed him who have godly teachings. Now, we don't have time to go into all the detail, but we can say that at that time they believed that the Old Testament was supernaturally written by God. It was 100% accurate. It was what God wanted to say. He wrote through different people. He didn't dictate it, but he wrote through different people using their gifts, abilities, styles, and so forth to write down what he wanted to say. And Jesus puts a stamp of approval on that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. He basically says this book is never going to pass away. These books are from God. And the same thing is believed about the New Testament. Um, And it was already being believed as it was being written. And we can look back today, and it's miraculous how the New Testament came together. Uh, Hundreds of years, over 100 years later, where they actually pulled all these things out of hiding, and these were the books that were still in existence. And most of the other ones were all gone. And the other books that were suggested, for the most part, fell away. I mean, even liberal scholars kind of say, well, yeah, this was pretty much universally accepted. This was the book. These were the books that were considered um, the supernatural writings. And if you want to talk more about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. It's absolutely fascinating, uh, the historical evidence for the uh, miraculous coming together of these books. And so the Word of God has come to represent the godly teaching of Christ. And so when we look at that, what he's saying is this is the word of God and this is what we should follow. And he says if somebody doesn't do that, they're conceited and and the word is puffed up. You know, somebody with their chest puffed out. They're puffed up. They know it all. They know better than God knows. They're right. God's wrong. In a sense, they're God. And so Paul takes a pin and he goes up to that balloon and pops it. And he says, they don't know what they're talking about. And then he goes into more detail. And starting at the second part of verse 4, he says, this person, he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant frictions between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. That sentence would never have made it past one of my English teacher's desks. That is a real run-on sentence. But uh, it's in a, in a best-selling book, so who's going to say anything? But it's amazing all that he gathers into that one sentence. 
It's interesting, too, because earlier it says in verse 3 that, that we should follow the sound instruction of Jesus. Literally, it probably should be the healthy instruction of Jesus as opposed to the unhealthy interest of these people. And the word he uses for unhealthy is the same word used for people who have mental health issues. He's saying they have some mental health issues if they're going to believe these things as opposed to what the Bible teaches. Well, pretty strong words. And, and he says they, they really need to follow what the Bible teaches. And he says if they don't, it's going to cause all sorts of trouble. And I'm not going to spend time going through all the different things he says here. But the gist of it is this. If you have a Bible and you, you say what's right and what's wrong, you can go to the Bible and you'll find that the core teachings of the Bible are really pretty much indisputable. The core teachings, people realize what they are. Not everybody wants to accept them, but it's like, well, that's what it's saying. And that's true really on moral issues as well. You'll have some problems sometimes, but for the most part, you have the information that you have in the Bible. You have something to sit down on and say, can we look at the Bible and work through this together to see what the Bible says? But if you don't have the Bible, then it's just my word versus yours. So it may be that at this point in time, your culture is behind what you're saying. You join in. But what happens when that changes? What happens when there's a new scientific discovery that changes the old one? What happens when people vote out your position for another position? What happens when your best friend disagrees with you? See what I'm saying? You start finding yourself in a lot of trouble. And you can get in all sorts of a mess. And, and then you start fighting with each other and you have friction and you can't resolve the problem. Because you don't... What happens is there is no bottom line. There is no blueprint. It all comes back to you. I'm right. You know, I'm God. Another person says, I'm right, I'm God. Who wins? If there's no way to resolve it, if you can't go back to the Bible, how do you know who's right and who's wrong? It just causes friction. And so he points that out. And then he says something very interesting. And this, I, I, I confess, when I did this um, sermon, I actually wrote this sermon twice. The first time I wrote it, I was thinking one way, and then I looked back and I saw something that I'd missed, and it actually tied these two paragraphs together, and I didn't get it at first. And it was this whole idea of inheritance, because he says, um, have been robbed of the truth. And I was reading a, a scholar who was looking at this and just talking about the language side of it, which I'm not as adept in, and, and I was reading it, and he was saying, you know, really, in this language, in the Greek language, he's talking about inheritance. They've been robbed of their inheritance. And that picture kind of pulled everything together for me because I realized God gives us an inheritance. We are all offered an inheritance. And the inheritance that we offered, that is offered to us, is Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross, risen from the grave, offered to us for eternal salvation if we be only bend the knee and by grace receive him, you know, give our lives to him. It's offered to everybody in the room and all the benefits that go along with that. But if instead we follow these false teachings of our culture, which, by the way, Paul's been talking about since chapter 1, then what happens? We are robbed of our inheritance we lose the inheritance. We lose the opportunity to live with him forever in heaven and all the benefits that go with that. And so instead, we should do that. But then the next thing he says is that these false prophets, what they do is they think that by acting godly 
and putting a spin on it and saying what people want to hear, they can have money and they can have possessions. And so rather than following God's way, they follow the way of the world. And they say, and the way of the world will work. If you say what people want to say, you will be popular and you can make money that way. And that's what they do. They use their godliness, their phony godliness to make money. And some of them used to watch on TV today. And they say all the positive thinking stuff and all the, you know, name it, claim it stuff. And they make a lot of money and they're very popular. But that doesn't mean that they're saying what the Bible is saying. Interesting passage. You, know, you see right away, you know, they, they're going to get whatever they can get with their money, but they're not going to do what God wants them to do in the end. And they're going to lose this relationship with God and living like they should. When I was 18, I uh, went away to college. Um, not too far, really. I had maybe 45 minutes away from where I lived at the time. I went away to San Jose State University. And when I was there, I started exploring this Christian organization, this, this uh, ministry on campus that I was told about. And I met a guy, and we went out on the quad. The quad's really pretty. It looks a little bit like New England. There's a big stone tower there and a fountain and green grass and trees. Very, very pretty setting. And we sat down with a young lady, and we talked to her about God. And I told her the things of the world. And she agreed with me, and he thought there's something wrong with what you're telling her. Because I wasn't so much interested in making money at that time, I was, but I was very interested in being popular and doing the things that people would think were right. And so my friend, his name was Terry, took me aside to have a talk with me afterwards. Terry was six years older than me. He had a single mom and had been working himself through college, almost done, as a carpenter on the side. He was a wiry man with uh, thin, wispy, blonde hair. He was already receding some. He had a big mustache, prominent nose, but two piercing, deep blue eyes that I'll never forget. He could just look right into your soul. Deep voice. And he looked at me, and he, and he spoke to me, and, and we had a conversation that is one of those conversations that defines your life. On television, they have those every episode. <laughs> but in reality, there's only a few of those when you look back when you get older. That there's only maybe a handful that you remember that that conversation changed my life. I wish I could remember all that he said. I remember most of the basic idea. I remember that he told me, Ron, you have created your own religion. And then he looked me in the eye and he said, I challenge you to read the Bible for what it says, not for what you want it to say. Now, today, a lot of times we're really careful. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so we don't want to say anything like that that might offend them. But I'm eternally grateful that Terry took the risk and offended me. He made me very angry, and I felt like I wanted to slug him. And I walked away, and I did some thinking, and I decided to do it. I decided that I was going to take God's word for what it is. I was going to read it for what it said, not for what I wanted it to say. And it changed my life. It radically changed my life. I found that I could make decisions easier because I had guidance to do that. My mind was clear, 
My conscience was clear. I found that some people didn't like me for it, but most people respected me because I now had convictions that I had some reason for what I believed in other than just myself and what was popular. And um, I found that I made deeper friendships with people than I ever thought possible, other people who had these convictions as well, and we began to grow deeper in our relationships. So I want to encourage you in that area today. If you never have, I challenge you to read the Bible for what it says, not for what you want it to say. And see what kind of difference it makes in your life. And then for all of us, one of the things I've struggled with, even as I was reviewing this and preparing, I realized that sometimes I forget to do this. I come across decisions that are difficult decisions. And instead of going to the Bible and reading the Bible and wrestling through that decision with the Bible, I just kind of move ahead. And then when it gets to be a mess, then I go back and say, oh, I better pray and read my Bible on this one. I still slip on that sometimes. And then I think, man, I could have made this so much easier. So I encourage you to take those difficult decisions. Not get paranoid about every little thing you do, you know, how you, where you part your hair today or whatever. You don't get hung up on that. But, uh, but it's more when you run across something and say, oh, this is a little bit... I wonder what God would have me do on this one. This one isn't coming to me right away. It's not a real natural thing. I need to sit down and wrestle with it. I need to pray. I need to, you know, read my Bible, maybe even bring somebody else in to work, work through this. I encourage you to do that. The second part of this, verses 6 through 10, is choosing material gain or contentment. He's already moving into that. He's saying, these guys that are false teachers want you to seek popularity and they want you to seek money. You know, they want you to seek money and they want you to seek possessions and all the things you can get. And he's going to talk about that as opposed to contentment. He says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. They are faking godliness so that they can make money. He says, basically, you seek godliness for the sake of godliness. You want to get to know God. You get close to God. That's a good thing. You don't seek it for what you can get out of it, but in the process, you do get things out of it. And one of the main things you get when you come into a close relationship with God and do things His way and say, I'm going to, and you're following Him 100%, is contentment. And the word He uses for contentment is a classical Greek word, which means a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. It's when you're in your sweet spot. It's when, you know, it's what I was describing. There's this sense of peace and security because you know, you know, you're comfortable with yourself. You know you're right with God. But listen, it doesn't always mean that it's accompanied with wealth and prosperity. He goes on to say this. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Have you heard the saying, you can't take it with you? That's where it comes from. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. When it comes down to it, what do you need, bottom line? If it comes down to it, you need food to live and you need clothing to live. You don't need houses. You don't need transportation. Those are good things. You don't need, you know, all the extras. You don't really need it. You can survive, maybe in the woods or under a bridge or whatever, as people do with food and with clothing. And you can be content with that. And that's his point. 
you can have the bare minimum of life and still have contentment if you're doing what God wants and you're following him. Because he says, if you, you can have nothing and be content or you can have everything and lose it all. Because you will lose it all when you die. When I was about 29 years of age, I was working at a church in Millbrae by San Francisco International Airport. And there was a lady in Burlingame. She had an elderly husband named Roy who passed away. He was in his 90s. And she asked me to come by and see her, and I did. And when I got there, Jean escorted me into the kitchen. This was old school. And there before me was Ray, laid out with no clothes on, a skeleton of a man, and they were preparing his body for burial in their kitchen like they used to do in the old days. I was like 29 years of age. It blew me away. It shocked me. And you know what? The first thing I remember coming to my mind, that's going to be me someday. That's going to be me. That's going to be us someday. Remember what Job says in Job 1, verse 20? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's how it's going to end. You can't take it with you. But you can have contentment with nothing. That's the trade-off. Now, he goes on, and he says, um, he says, people who want to get rich, it's not wrong to want to get rich in a sense. You know, the idea here is, you know, to make money is not bad, but to want to get rich, the idea here is greedy, to never have enough, to always want to make more and more and more. That idea, people who are greedy, they just, all they can do is want to get rich. They fall into, into temptation and a trap and, to, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Plunge is the idea of sinking a ship. They sink their ship. People who live for money and they don't live for God, they sink their ship and they, they enter into ruin and destruction. And he uses a very interesting literary device here. He's pulling out all the stops at the end here. He says, literally, he says... They, they bring themselves to destruction and destruction. And we don't translate it that way because would that make sense? Destruction and destruction. We say, what does he mean by that? So we say ruin and destruction, but he really says destruction and destruction. Destruction on top of destruction. There's no way out. Eternal misery. It's a picture of hell. He's saying that people who live for money and possessions over God, and that's their whole focus, and it just absorbs them, they'll lose it all, and they'll suffer destruction over destruction. They'll die and go to hell. Paul's not being real friendly. He's being pretty hard, isn't he? But that's what he says in this passage. Now, he goes on from there, and he says, he, he gives the most possibly the most misquoted verse in all the Bible. You ready? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. How we usually hear that verse is money is the root of evil, right? But that's not what it says. It says 
money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is amoral. It's neither good nor is it bad. What you do with money determines whether it's moral or not. If you make money illegally, you know, through, you know, the sex industry, through prostitution, through um, drugs and things like that, and and, and in criminal activity, obviously that's a bad use of money. If you spend your money on those things, that's a bad use of money. If you just love money so much that that's all that you have, you're just your whole life is wrapped up around money, that can be bad. But money in and of itself is not bad. Money in and of itself is not bad. It's what you do with it that makes it bad. And so if you use your money for good things, then it can be good. You know, now the Bible will tell us, for example, the Bible says that anybody who doesn't take care of his family, remember we learned that in the last chapter, I think, is worse than an unbeliever. So we need to provide for our families. That's a good thing, isn't it? You want to be able to take care of your families, have a house for them to live in, have transportation, have food and clothing. Those are good things. So if you make your money and you spend it on those things, that's good. And if you make your money and you're giving with your money, you're generous with it, you give to the church, you give to those in need in the community, that's a good use of your money. In fact, I was reading about the almsgiving um, in a dictionary recently, and what they used to believe is the more you give, uh, the more chance you had to get into heaven. Um, and, of course, that's not true, but we've lost the art of almsgiving. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, it was government. The government expected the rich to take care of the poor. It was expected. I mean, it was part of, it was part of the Mosaic Law. We should all be willing to take care of people who have less than us. So if you're a person who's generous and gives with their money, hey, that's a good thing. Money can be a good thing. It just depends how you use your money. Now, we get to that point, and he says, um, and, and if you don't, it runs into all sorts of trouble. If you love money, and that becomes your full sole focus, now you have problems. Some people eager for money, people that are grasping for it, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And it's a picture of a sheep that's wandered away, and it's gotten into a thorn bush and gotten pierced. It's a picture of somebody who may still know the Lord, but they've wandered out of church and off the path, and they're in trouble because they've got money too much on their mind and it's begun to consume them. Carrie and I had some friends that were really dear to us, and uh, we saw them you know, turn to God for a season, and they were doing well. But they had this problem with money. They always, they'd make money, and they'd lose money, and they'd make money, and they'd lose money. And they'd have these mansions, and they'd have these swimming pools, and they'd go on these phenomenal vacations, and they'd do all this stuff, and then they'd lose it. And one time on the downward spiral, they ended up getting a divorce. The kids were hurt horribly through the whole thing. And um, they lost pretty much everything. They left church. At least he has. It's a really sad situation because money ended up consuming them. So what are we saying with all this? Let's look at it from this way. One thing I'd, I'd like us to learn is about, about the theology of money. What does God say about money? There's, there's a lot that's said about money that we don't always talk about. Uh, possibly the best book that we have out there these days, and I haven't read the whole book, but I've read a lot of excerpts and things on it, is God, Money, and Possessions 
by Randy Alcorn. He's written a shorter book, which I have read. It's really more of a booklet that I would recommend to everybody in the room called The Treasure Principle. And one of the things that Randy basically says is, you know, the gist of it is this. God gives us physical things to express who we are spiritually. God gives us physical things to express who we are spiritually. How you make your money, how you spend your money, what you think about money in many ways defines who you are as a person before God. It reveals your spiritual heart. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where your heart is, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I'd encourage you to think through these things. Where is your mind at? Look at your, you know, your checkbook. Where are you spending the money? What does it tell you about where you're at in your heart with God? Now, the second thing that he brings up is this whole idea, again, of contentment. And I love the example of Paul in his own life. Paul gives a personal example in Philippians chapter 4. And moving down to the second part of verse 11, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Yeah, he, he's learned what it's like. Paul was very poor at times. He was in prison, and yet he sang in a jail cell because he was content. At the same time, when he was in Ephesus, he was working as a professor, and he was doing all right. He probably was making pretty good money, and he had nice things. So he had different seasons in his life, and he enjoyed them both. That's the whole idea that we need to be content with whatever we have. On one hand, I was down in Mexico, and I was talking to a guy in an orphanage, and I was saying, what are some things we can do to help the orphanage and so forth? He says, one thing, don't tell people to feel sorry uh, for the Mexican kids. Because in many ways, I think they're more content than the American kids. He said, see those kids over there playing in the mud? They're happy. But if you went up to the United States and took their electronic gadgets away from your kids, what would happen? He says, so, so we need to start thinking, what if we had everything taken away from us? Could we still be content? Um, maybe even do without some things for a week or so and see where's your heart at. It's a good challenge for us. So we should be content with anything. And some people, like St. Francis of Assisi, some of those people would give up everything they have and take voluntary poverty. That's all right. But it's also all right to be wealthy. You know, if God gives you wealth and you're doing well, and you're very generous with it, it's all right to have a nice house. Remember, I have a nice house, and I remember thinking, is it right to get this? And I wrestled through, and I thought, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. It's an investment for me, and, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to be using it. You know, the money's going to go to good things, you know, in the end, I think. And, uh, and what it really hit me, though, is the fact that if you don't buy houses, you're going to put carpenters and, and real estate people and everybody else out of business. It generates business, doesn't it? You ever think about that? You buy clothes, somebody makes money off of that. You stop buying things, other people don't make money. So there is the other side of the coin that we have some of these things, and it's all right to have them. One of the problems that we have as believers is 
we either feel guilty about having nice possessions or we feel judgmental about those who do. And neither side is right. The bottom line is, if, is this. Jesus, I think, says it best, again, in the Sermon on the Mountain, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34, Jesus says, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things that you need will be given to you. God will take care of all of their needs. And then he, you know what he says? Don't worry about it. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Don't worry about it. Move on. So I would say the bottom line is this. Seek God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Spend time daily with him, praying, reading your Bible, growing in your relationship with him. Get involved with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Get in small groups. Get involved in church and grow in your relationship with God. At the same time, work very hard at whatever your profession is. Make money. Take that money and generously give that money to the church and to those people that are in need. And if you have extra money, that's okay. Buy a nice house, buy a nice boat or a car or whatever, and use it for ministry or whatever and enjoy it. But keep this in mind. Whatever you have, hold loosely because you only have it for a season. Enjoy it today because it may be gone tomorrow. In fact, by the time most of us die, we'll have lost most of what we have. So hold it loosely because you can't take it with you. And I want you to keep one other perspective on all of this, and that is that there may be a time when you're called to give it all up for Christ. Can you give it all up? Yeah, I like a lot of contemporary Christian music, but one of the, the um, things I don't like about contemporary Christian music stations is that they're so, they're, they're so recent, you know, they're so modern. You, they only do like 10 years at a time. You go to a secular station, they'll play some of the old hits from you know, 20, 30 years ago, but, but Christians don't do that for some reason. And there were some really good songs written, some rather prophetic songs, because there's different seasons written like in the late 70s and early 80s that were really um, emphasizing how we need to take stands for God. And there was a song that just came to my mind even as I was preparing this. And Mitch and I talked about it, and it really ties into the talk he gave a few weeks ago about being willing to give up everything for, for God. It was a song written by Keith Green, and it's called, I Pledge My Head to Heaven. And in the song, there's actually um, really good instrumentalists. You know, they, they actually have a harmonica solo by uh, Bob Dylan in it. So it's a kind of interesting song. But uh, listen to these words. He says, uh, and these words, some of them, it gets a little bit harder and harder and a little hard for us to hear. But it is, I think, really captures a lot of what God says we should be willing to do. Uh, as I say, we enjoy our lives, but we should be willing to do this. He says, well, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. And I ask no man on earth to fill my needs. Like the sparrow up above, I am enveloped in his love. And I trust him like those little ones he feeds. And then he says, Well, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. Though our love each passing day just seems to grow. As I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one save my soul that's you know that's a different way of thinking and then listen to this one this is going to get some of you he says, um, he says well I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel though he's kicked and beaten ridiculed and scorned I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful praising voice and be like him who bore the nails and crown of thorns we don't hear that very often. 
But that's what we should be willing to do. And it's not just the 1970s. You can go back to the 16th century when Martin Luther took a beer-drinking song and turned it into a hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And at the end of that hymn, what does he say? He says, let goods, all that I have, all my possessions, let goods and kindred, all my family, friends, all those close to me, let goods and kindred go. I'm willing to give them all up. This mortal life also, I'm willing to give my own self up. Because he says, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that with you, we can live forever. And that's just such an amazing thought. Um, Lord, I thank you that, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the world, most of us in this room are very wealthy. Um, You have provided for us, and we thank you for the provisions you've made. And at the same time, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be content whatever our circumstances are and we would seek after you with all our heart, minds, and soul and be generous with whatever you would give us, even if it's not that much, and trust you in knowing that one day we can have everything in heaven. I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't yet know you, that they come and talk to us, that we can introduce them to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes all of this possible. We pray these things in your name. Amen.